and welcome to the Transfer Window Podcast. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Manchester United look to solve their left-back problems with Alex Sandro, but Kieran Tierney is also on the radar. Paul Pogba's agent, Miro Raiola, is talking to the biggest clubs in football about a move for his client. We bring you their response. Antonio Conte could be in line for a move to what we dub the new FC Hollywood Paris Saint-Germain. We ask, how will the Italian deal with Neymar? And it's International Week, so we look at how the top teams are shaping up for a tilt at the World Cup. Okay, Duncan, you broke the story that Manchester United are interested in Kieran Tierney and that he has been pushed to Jose Mourinho by uh, some of the Manchester United scouts. What's the story as it's developing? Yeah, this is a, it's an interest that's hardened from the Manchester United side as Kieran Tierney has continued to develop and impress for um, Celtic and Scotland in Champions League at international level. He's a player who's been much admired by United scouting department since he broke into the Celtic team. Um, and he ticks boxes in terms of um, his technical ability, in terms of Billy going forward, good physique. Um, what he's added uh, to his game in the past year is he's shown a versatility and that he's played right back for Scotland. He's played centre-back um, for Scotland and for Celtic in several games. And those are traits that Mourinho likes in a player. He likes defenders, like well, players in all positions who are capable of working in different tactical systems, different positions. Um, and I think you can look at it this way, that United will look to sign it at least one full-back in, in the summer. They'll definitely sign a left-back. Um, they need to replace Luke Shaw. Um, Mourinho wants a starting left-back. He wants significant upgrades to his defence and his midfield. Tierney is an option for him, and one, as I said, the Manchester United scouting department likes. His first choice for the position remains Alexandro um, at Juventus who would like to come to Manchester United, but who will cost... Well, Juventus have been asking for €70 million Euros for him. Um, they are more likely to sell him in the summer than they were in January when United tried. But I think you can look at this position as a, as a kind of test of where Manchester United's backing is for Mourinho because he wants um, decisive players in, into the squad who are ready to be starters and to um, you know, radically change the, the, the way the team can play, particularly in, in top Premier League matches and top Champions League games. And he'll want someone like Alexandro as a first choice. And if they end up going for Kieran Tierney, that will be an economical decision, looking at a guy who can develop into a one of the, one of the, the best left-backs in the world in maybe two or three seasons' time, rather than signing one of the best left-backs in the world, which is what Mourinho wants. And to be fair, Duncan, um, <clears throat> you'll have to look at Andy Robertson's progress at Liverpool, where uh, he was bought at a small price, um, relatively speaking. Um, coached, didn't make the first team, um, despite the fact that Liverpool's defence was a shambles, um, and has since come in and 
been very, very influential in terms of his assists, the way that he moves forward. And Tierney is that kind of player as well. So it's the um, <clears throat> there is a, a precedent, if you like, in, among Scottish young left-backs, <clears throat> full-backs, where um, they've been shown that they can actually cope and, and excel, indeed, on a, on a big stage. <clears throat> I take your point about Alexandro. Um, at the same time, um, there was a recruitment meeting with the hierarchy at Manchester United on Tuesday um, of last week, <clears throat> where Mourinho was more interested in, uh, not more interested, but certainly more um, pushing in the players he needs or wants to get out of the club. Uh, and those include Luke Shaw, who we know is disappointed. Chris Smalling, Ander Herrera, Marin Fellaini, who he believes doesn't, was a new contract. Matteo Darmian, another player who he would like to um, sell in order to bring in other members of staff in order to augment a squad which he feels is deficient in defence. So I think there's um, a priority, uh, uh, and you've alluded to it, Duncan, um, with regards to um, making the defence better. But there's also um, some positions elsewhere in the team where he feels that they need to um, improve the outball which, um, as most coaches will tell you, is essential when um, you're in a situation whereby you are being pinned back or you're trying to play on the break. I don't think he feels he has that out ball right now. He's tried Martial, he's tried um, Lingard in those um, situations. But I think he think, feels he needs more pace. And Malcolm at Bordeaux is a player who would be able to um, provide the pace, provide the out ball which um, Manchester United could do with when they're in situations, which we've seen in the last few weeks when they've been floundering or at least under pressure um, in matches where they need to play a bit more stretched and uh, get the ball forward more quickly and more directly. Um, so I think it's going to be an interesting sort of you know few weeks. We're now coming into the beginning of April. Um, from my experience, all of the big clubs... I've already had one or two recruitment meetings already so far. They have a list of targets. Manchester United have been presented with uh, what Jose Mourinho wants uh, in terms of both players sold and players coming in um, in the coming uh, transfer window. And so I think we'll see a lot of movement um, in and out of Manchester United. I think it'll be handicapped, if you like, by the fact that the players he wants to move out are on big contracts and probably don't want to leave. But there is a definitely a necessity for Manchester United to change the personnel quite radically in order to suit what Jose Mourinho sees as a team going forward to challenge for the Premier League and Champions next season. I think that's right. I think it's an unappreciated element of the, the rebuilding job that has had to be done at Manchester United over the last two years is how difficult it is to get players out of the club. Um, because they don't have suitors at more attractive clubs. They're well paid. They've been on long contracts. So they just don't want to leave. Um, and one of the things Mourinho is trying to do now is say to the board, look, these, this is where we've got to after two years of recruitment. This summer, we need to clear out the deadwood and we need to bring in players who can immediately at the top level. If we want to be... <coughs> We want to be Manchester City to um, Premier League, and if we want to get higher 
in further on in, in the Champions League. Your your point on, on Andy Robertson is a good one, and that's actually a comparison that has been made by um, people close to Mourinho, um, which is that Tierney definitely has the technical and physical abilities to turn into um, uh, you know a, a left back for a top Premier League club. But the safe route they feel or they felt is to allow him to move to a mid-tier um, Premier League team, get experience at that level, like Andy Robertson did when he left Dundee United to go to Hull City, um, and then you know, one, two seasons down the line, shift to a top club and, and, and be ready to perform immediately. It's that it, the, there's a f and, and we've seen it with Virgil van Dijk and Victor Wanyama, players like that. They've all made that move from Celtic or from, from the Scottish Premier League to England to a mid-tier club and then gone to, to one of the, the top six clubs and excelled. And it's just that there's definitely a fear generally amongst English Premier League clubs about taking a risk on a player who comes from um, a, a lower level league, which is what Scottish Premier League is, um, even if they've got Champions League experience, of whether they can go straight into a top team and perform um, every week under pressure and it, it's just it's safer for them um, to to allow a Southampton for example to buy the player and then buy them off Southampton at a big markup a couple of years down the line because that's that's what their that's what fits their needs rather than um, what makes economic sense to them. You mentioned Alexandro there Duncan and obviously he's going to be playing in the World Cup I just wondered, wondered if you could touch on the logistical issues surrounding signing a player of that quality in a summer where there's a World Cup, not only logistically because he's in Russia, but also in terms of price if he's having a very good World Cup out there. Yeah, look, um, if someone has, a, we've seen many times some, some players being bought off the back of World Cup um, performances, you know, Louis van Gaal. Dreadful um, decisions mainly. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Ham, you know, James but, Rodriguez is the is the classic example from the last World Cup. Rodriguez, massively, yeah. massively overpaid. Uh, Real Madrid did for him, <clears throat> and now he's on loan to Bayern Munich, where he's not even starting for them. And you know, I think what you say, Johnny, is correct. Logistically, it's difficult. But I have seen, I've been in so many hotel lobbies in World Cup cities, watching agents and players and presidents do deals for players who have performed or outperformed um, themselves and therefore clubs want to cash in and, and go for it in, in those situations. Um, Maybe a bit more difficult in Russia because it, it, movements can be a bit more difficult but, uh, there, but at the same time, it will happen. I was just, I was just going to give the example of the last World Cup where um, Louis van Gaal decided he wanted to sign Kaylor Navas because he had a good game in a penalty shootout. Um, and, and was prepared was prepared to dump David De Gea as, as Manchester United goalkeeper off the back of that of what he'd seen in one World Cup match. Uh, fortunately for Manchester United, that, that didn't happen. He went to Real Madrid instead. Um, but that's the kind of thing that that you'd think would be finished from World Cups, given the amount of you know the, the huge investment that goes into scouting these days. Um, but still happens. Um, so yeah, you do have that element of good World Cup performances can, can increase price. I think the biggest logistical difficulty for um, someone like Mourinho is 
you are, you've got to deal with the fact that a player who goes deep into the World Cup and, and wants to perform in the World Cup is going to invest a lot of physical and mental energy in the tournament through the summer, will come back to training late and, um, and will be harder to get into the best uh, physical and, and tactical condition for, for the coming season. So, and, and what you can expect Mourinho and Manchester United to do in this window is what he's tried to do in every window. Um, he's been there and signed the players as quickly as possible. So he'll try and get the deals done before the World Cup even starts. So that kind of negotiating during the tournament in his ideal world won't happen anyway. But you can't delete um, if you buy a player who is at the World Cup and is going to go all the way to the <coughs> final stages, you can't delete the fact that you're not going to have as much uh, training time with them and not as much preparation time with them for the coming season. I'll say this, Johnny, just to intervene um, on this part of the conversation. <clears throat> One player who absolutely needs and will be demanded of a good World Cup is Paul Pogba because the <clears throat> rate at which he's underperformed at Manchester United is alarming. Um, it's true that Mina Raiola, his agent, has tested the waters with um, clubs who can afford him. And when we say that, you've got to say there's only three or four clubs, the elite clubs in Europe, who can afford Paul Pogba. He's had not very much um, response from them. I think Paris Saint-Germain at this moment in time are the only club who have given a, a more than lukewarm response about Pogba. Now, I'm not saying that that's because Manchester United want to sell but it's because Mina Raiola, as his agent, has a duty and, of course, a financial gain to make from marketing a player who is unhappy at his current club and is not performing. Now, if Pogba goes to Russia and has an amazing World Cup in which France reached the semi-finals or whatever, then clearly his stock rises, it's easier to sell him, or it's easier to make him um, much more secure at Manchester United. Uh, where he's not proven himself or impressed Jose Mourinho to the point where he's a starting player anymore. So um, the World Cup has a big effect on the transfer market this summer. Um, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but a very um, big effect regardless. And I think Pogba is one of those players who uh, has an opportunity to step up to the plate, uh, play for his country and then make a statement with regards to what his future holds. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think Mino Raiola is doing his job as an agent by discovering, finding out what his, his, his player's options are should he um, decide he wants to, to leave Manchester United. But not only is he doing that, he is potentially uh, getting leverage for the player in any discussions with the club about what his status should be in the team. And um, in terms of this dispute with the manager over how he should be played and how he should perform for the team. Because if, if Raiola can go to Manchester United and say, I have an offer from, for example, Paris Saint-Germain um, for my player and they want to take him and they will uh, increase his wages and they will pay a transfer fee, which you might be interested in, then that allows Pogba um, and Raiola more negotiating room with Mourinho over Pogba's status in the team, and that's kind of it's it's an it's an increasing element in in the game. And 
and it's only as the transfer fees and as the salaries, as the financial commitment of even the super clubs on one or two star players grows and grows and grows, and it has been growing exponentially in recent years. We've seen you know, top salaries more than double in the last um, two years. As that happens, then these guys have more influence upon uh, team decisions because the club's investment in, a, in one player becomes greater than it's ever been before. And they don't want to see that. In, in, or it's harder for them to say, well, you have to toe the line. Um, you have to do what the manager says because they see the pounds on the, on the balance sheet um, rather than the performances on the pitch. Yeah, are we getting to a stage where some of these deals are just too big to fail? Because you talk about them being super clubs and we know the elite clubs, we talk about them on this podcast often. But essentially, a deal like this, you can only transfer from one super club to another because with the way that the game has gone and the way the money is spread out throughout the game, it it has accumulated to the big clubs. So... Does it essentially mean that that, that these deals are too big to fail? You've got to get them right, Johnny. You've got to get them right. And a a, a classic example for me would be Kaká's move from AC Milan to Real Madrid, um, which was the the second biggest transfer at at that summer when they bought bought Cristiano Ronaldo the same summer as Kaká and had the two highest transfers of all time. And um, on the surface... An amazing deal for a brilliant footballer when Kaká's peak was sensational combination of, of technical talent, goal scoring and an incredible speed. But unfortunately, Real Madrid bought him with a chronic <coughs> injury, which M- Milan were well aware of and which Kaká was well aware of. And they ended up with essentially a player who was a, a, a fraction of, of what he had been. And... Um, they actually spurned the opportunity to get out of that deal with a minimal loss because when Jose Mourinho arrived at the club, he advised Real Madrid to sell him then, which was one season into his, his time at Madrid. And they could probably have recouped a good chunk of the transfer fee at that stage. His problems weren't well known. And they would have got the wage bill uh, off, off, their, off their salaries. Instead, they refused to do that and they ended up having to go... Um, you know, the full length of the contract, pay him the full salary. So it was, you know, hundreds of millions of euros was the, the eventual cost with limited return on on the field. Um, and you're right in the sense that with a player like that, you can only really move him to another super club. So once it became clear that Kakao was on such a, a downward trajectory, the player wasn't prepared to move to any other club. And and he um, and there wasn't a sell to a big club because people were aware he wasn't worth the money anymore. So you just saw that deteriorate, and he and he ends up eventually moving to American football for the, the last stage of his career. I think as well, <clears throat> it's important to say that there are no guarantees. We're talking about human beings here, not not robots, not automatons, where um, you expect them to um, perform at the optimum of their. Um, talent uh, all of the time. And I'd say as well, um, to add to Duncan's Kaká analogy, um, Fernando Torres, who moved from 
Liverpool to Chelsea for a, a, a record transfer fee between two English clubs <clears throat> of £50 million and was an, an adulterated flop in doing so. And everyone at Liverpool knew he had knee injuries and attitude problems and everything else. But the Liverpool were prepared to sell in a January window as well, remember, a January window. That's the one that would like you know flash red light to me if I was the buying club. Why would this club be willing to sell their, allegedly their best player in January? Uh, however, they did, uh, and they got fifty million, and they profited from it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, they spent thirty-five of it on Andy Carroll, though. So and Andy Carroll, who 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 was just as much of a donkey as it tur- as it turned out as well, Johnny. So. I would say that you know your question about these um, you know mega transfers are they just too big to fail? Well, actually no, because you cannot guarantee how a player will respond in a new environment, in new circumstances, with new teammates, a new manager, etc., etc. There's always going to be an element of risk, and the best clubs and the best um, managers and administrations they calculate that risk uh, and they decide for themselves on what is the minimum risk. At this moment in time, I would say that, in my opinion anyway, um, Real Madrid um, historically transfers of Luis Figo, uh, Zinedine Zidane, of Ronaldo, the fat one that is obviously, and Ronaldo, the slim one, um, have been the best at choosing the right player at the right time to fulfil the expectations which come with the transfer fee. Everywhere else, I think there's been um, certainly a degree of um, indubitability, a degree of, uh, as I said, risk which has not been fulfilled. And it's one of those things where you just take a punt. And, And in football, you know, that's essentially what happens. You just simply don't know how well a player's going to perform when he changes clubs. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think we've had more misses than hits in terms of world record transfers in the last 10 years. Uh, Kaká is one of the, the, the worst examples or best examples, depending how you look at it. Uh, Torres is another one. Andrei Shevchenko, um, who, interestingly, came out of Milanello as well. Uh, and everyone knows the rumours about what happens in Milan, stays in Milan. Uh, so, yeah, it's one of those things where you, you simply cannot guarantee that a player will produce his utmost performance when he moves clubs. But what you can guarantee is the cash that you generate by selling him will help you to reinvest in your own club. Fernando Torres is a brilliant example because Liverpool handled that transfer in a very astute way. They knew the, the, the degree and severity of Torres's injuries. They knew he had... Um, rushed himself back from a serious injury to play in in um, Spain's World Cup in South Africa, um, their first World Cup win. You, you probably remember that he actually injured himself in the in the final seconds of that World Cup final. Um, they allowed him to go to Chelsea. They knew Roman Abramovich was desperate to sign the player, but they waited to the very, very last day of the transfer window and the last hours of the transfer window to send Torres down to Chelsea when there was not sufficient time for him to take a proper medical. And if he'd taken a proper medical, probably Chelsea would have realised that the player wasn't worth £50 million. 
but they ended up signing a player without checking his medical condition and a guy who cost them, again, tens of millions of pounds in, in, in transfer fee and uh, wages. And, you know, you could even add the lost opportunities of all those times they put him on the field and he failed to perform. Um, so one of the all-time disastrous transfers and for a long time the record transfer fee for a UK club. Yeah, and just because you um, brought us the story with regards to Mino Riola, where do you see the end game being for Paul Pogba? I think he stays at United for another year, Johnny. Um, I don't think that, that his form, his attitude, <clears throat> his um, even just his presentation of himself on the football pitch, and by that I mean um, uh, the way that his body language is, the um, the effect he has on open play and and play in general um, means that no club will take a risk of spending ninety million euros, which is the asking price from Manchester United, on him. And so I think uh, Pogba has to prove himself again at Manchester United. Uh, I think one of the problems is that he believed that he was going into Manchester United on the back of um, obviously. Uh, very impressive success with Juventus uh, in terms of Scudetto wins and Champions League um, uh, uh, performances where he reached one final and two semi-finals in four years meant that um, he felt that he could just simply arrive back in Manchester and uh, and rule the roost, as it were. Uh, and that's not been the case. Uh, and therefore, Pogba has a lot of rebuilding to do, rebuilding of his relationship with Jose Mourinho, rebuilding of his relationship with Manchester United fans, but more importantly, rebuilding of his uh, reputation as one of the world's, let's just say, uh, midfielders with great potential, because he's definitely not there yet. Um, and he needs to convince people of his ability. And I, I must admit, I, I've not been impressed uh, by the way that he has gone about things in the last six to eight weeks. Um, and therefore, I think one of the reasons Mina Raiola, his agent, is struggling to find him a club who will pay the wages and the transfer fee for him is that um, no one else has been impressed by him in, in that time as well. So I see the end game, not the end game, that's the wrong way to, you know, for, to describe a, a guy who's only 23, 24. Um, I see the the, the, the future of um, Paul Pogba in terms of the immediate term being at Manchester United, rebuilding his reputation uh, and, and you know showing his worth. And if he does that, then there's no reason why Manchester United won't keep him. But at this moment in time, I think if they could sell him for 90 million euros, they would. Well, one club that... Paul Pogma might fit in perfectly well at is the one that the Transfer Window podcast has christened the new FC Hollywood PSG. And we're going to go there now to discuss uh, the links with Antonio Conte as their new manager as Unai Emery continues to struggle. He's obviously failed to qualify for the latter stages of the Champions League. And uh, as we'd say in Scotland, his coat is on a shugly peg. Duncan, what's the latest on this? There's been quite a lot of reporting on this in the last few days, kind of suggesting that Conte is the main candidate for, for Paris Saint-Germain and that they've come in quite aggressively for him in recent weeks. Um, checked with 
someone close to Antonio Conte um, and the, the version of events coming from there is very different to what's been reported. Um, Conte's agents have been trying to push him to Paris Saint-Germain um, for most of the, the course of the season, which is a very obvious thing to do, knowing that the client intended to leave Chelsea at the end of the season if he wasn't um, dismissed by Chelsea beforehand, and Paris Saint-Germain were obviously in the market for a new coach. There has been an inquiry from Paris Saint-Germain as to his intentions for next season, but I'm told that it's nothing more than that. Um, and that Conte's um, principal focus at the moment is actually on the Italy national team job. Um, but interestingly, um, from from that side, they do not feel that Conte is currently the first choice um, for the uh, Italy job, as it was initially felt. Um, the reason for that is um, uh, Costa Curta is, is running a lot of the process of appointment at Italy, and he has received some um, kind of positive feedback from Carlo Ancelotti in recent weeks, and that Carlo had initially ruled himself out entirely of the Italy job and his position was that he wanted to coach in the Premier League, wanted to stay in London if he could um, and would not be interested in the Italy job. He's, his, his fundamental stance is the same. He wants to coach in, in, uh, in the Premier League. He, that's his priority. He's told Italy that, but he said, hold on and wait and see if I get the offer. Um, I'm expecting from the Premier League. If I don't, I might be interested in the Italy job. So he's moved to to the number one candidate as far as the Italian Federation are concerned, with Antonio Conte second and um, Roberto Mancini, who is very, very keen on the Italy job as the third option for them. I see um, PSG's um, transfer policy with regards to managers uh, appears to be re replicated by their, their transfer policy with players, i.e. it's rather than sniper rifle, it, it, it's shotgun. Um, therefore, they don't identify the target that they know and believe will be the one to take them to where they want to be. And instead, they just open up you know, the pellets and say, let's just try someone else. Um, and I'm afraid that's partly due to um, a club which does not share the historical elite status of the likes of AC Milan and Manchester United and Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, so they struggle to um, appoint someone who, uh, uh, if you like, is a sure thing, despite all the money that they have to spend. Um, they've also gained, garnered success from employing different managers, uh, Carl Ancelotti, I think, being the most impressive of that coterie but um they, they, i think you know if you're partisan demand you want someone who's going to guarantee you a proper and realistic shot at champions league glory and if that's the case you want jose Mourinho, you want luis enrique you want pep guardiola and those coaches to me are out of reach for price and german and therefore antonio conte comes into a secondary tier of coaches that they might just get lucky with. So it's like they're repeating a pattern of, um, of not failure, but of hope um, in, the, in the sense that 
they're not sure that manager will bring them the success that they crave, but they hope that that manager might just do what you know they want, which is to win the Champions League and and give the club the credibility and prestige that the um, the owners um, are desperately seeking. So um, uh, Conte is available, definitely. Um, he will leave Chelsea. Uh, undoubtedly, and um, and he might do well in Paris. He may he may not. I'm just not sure that um, he's the guy that you know. As I said, they they need to um, give them this, themselves the best chance of winning the trophy that they want more than anything else, and to obviously uh, make credible the hundreds of millions of pounds they spent on the team. Yeah, to, to be fair to Paris Saint-Germain, they do have a very clear idea of who they want as manager. Um, and they've, attract, they've offered him the job on at least three separate occasions and had him turned down, and that's Jose Mourinho. And uh, I, as far as my information is, the, he basically, the man still has an open invitation to take that job whenever he wants. So they want the best manager on the market. They just haven't been able to get him. Um, you can understand why Antonio Conte would be interested in, in the Paris Saint-Germain job, having spent um, basically two years at Chelsea complaining about not having enough budget, not being allowed to sign the players that he wants. Um, you can't really pick any other club um, in world football, apart from Manchester City, which is going to give you those conditions to, to work in. Um, he also might not be a bad fit to Paris Saint-Germain in that... Um, their domestic conditions aren't particularly challenging. So he has kind of rigorous training regime, um, which takes a lot out of the players, might be better suited to French football while, while competing for the Champions League than it has been to English football while trying to compete for the Champions League. And from Antonio, and a, a secondary reason why it's going to be appealing to Antonio Conte is his principal aim in football is to win the Champions League and establish himself on that top tier of management. And in terms of the jobs that are realistically available to him um, or who would realistically look at hiring him, given what's happened in the past year at Chelsea and, and clubs are very conscious when, when a manager gets into so much um, public conflict with the ownership over transfer policy and just about everything else at the club, probably Paris Saint-Germain is the only one he could realistically look at, at being appointed by um, at the moment, you know, some you could suggest Juventus, but his his you know the, the way he exited Juventus and huge conflict, leaving them in the middle or just before the start of pre-season, you can probably rule that out as as a candidate for him. So, so kind of Paris Saint Germain are the only throw the dice he's got in terms of a, a an immediate appointment for next season to go straight into a club that has a, a serious chance of winning the Champions League. I always think of Conte as a disciplinarian, Ian. How do you think he would deal with Neymar? <laughs> so, do you know what? I'd pay to see that, that's for sure. Um, was it March 11th, his sister's birthday, that he's managed to have off the last four years in a row? I'd love to see Conte, you know, March the 10th, saying, yeah, you ain't going to go see your sister tomorrow. Um, look, I, Conte's passionate. He's tactically aware. He is someone who... Um, I personally um, adored as a player. He, he used to run games from the right side of midfield 
at, at Juventus. And um, I just think he has become scunnered, as the Dundonians in this programme would say, and <laughs> by the way that um, that Chelsea do the transfer business. He, he feels like he earned enough in terms of his uh, first season um, Premier League title win to be able to influence a transfer policy the following season. That's not happened. Um, the, the team are faltering. The, the, the players clearly don't believe he's going to be there next season. Um, and that's a fatal uh, blow to any manager when the dressing room looks at you as a wounded animal and thinks that you know, you're know you not effectively going to be there because they, they think to themselves, well, why should I bother performing? Which I think is a lot of what's happened with Chelsea and of course you've got a lot of World Cup players at Chelsea as well um, and players who think well if we're not competing for the title or, or any big trophy then I'm just going to down tools make sure I don't get injured and, and just keep my energy for the World Cup and see what happens there so I think he's been a little bit unlucky in that sense um, I think he's been a victim of Chelsea's transfer policy which we have very much uh, discussed and uh, denoted um, on the transfer window throughout these last uh, weeks and months. So, if he goes to PSG, he would demand um, discipline. Neymar's not your man to give you it back, so I think it'd be a big problem uh, for for Conte. But at the same time, uh, if you're clever, if you're um, willing to compromise and get coax the best out of the best of your players, then you play along with them. You know, it's happened to Pep Guardiola did it at Barcelona with Messi. Luis Garcia uh, did it as well with Messi at Barcelona. You, you just, you, you could have temper the attitude to go with the best performance and you, you, you do that. And that's one of the things that great man managers do. Um, it's not something Alex Ferguson never did. It's not something Jose Mourinho was very good at. But it can be done. It's just about how much you're prepared to take in terms of swallowing your pride and saying, OK, you can go see your sister on her birthday. OK. I think, I think, I think you make a very good point there, Johnny. Um, you know, Antonio Conte wants maximum focus all the time. Um, one of Neymar's many complaints about Paris Saint-Germain this season is that Unai Emery hasn't allowed him to decide which games he he plays and when he's allowed to go off on holiday and it's not just for his sister's birthday that's that's you know that's written in that's guaranteed in the Neymar um, playbook that he gets to go for his sister's holiday he wants other other games off during the season I don't think that's going to go down well with Antonio Conte but more importantly Antonio Conte's attacking system is based around regularly and ruthlessly drilling in the same set of attacking moves into his players on counter-attacks and you would be asking Neymar, who's the most off-the-cuff, um, top-level footballer in the world, to adhere to um, an Italian disciplinarian's strict ideas about exactly the positions he should be in, the passes he should make, and the runs he should make when counter-attacking. I don't see that as a recipe for success, do you? Well, while Conte has options, his rival across London, Arsene Wenger, seems to be fast running out. The latest claims are of age discrimination. I was wondering what you guys made of those. Duncan, uh, any substance to them? 
<laughs> I was going to say, I've never heard a manager complain of age discrimination before. Uh, you've got to credit Arsene Wenger with adding a new, um, a new phrase to the, uh, the lexicology of, of uh, managerial excuses. Um, uh, maybe there is some substance to it. Maybe one of the reasons um, Arsene Wenger gets some negative press is because he's, he's old uh, in managerial terms. But if there is, it's only a tiny little degree. The key point is <laughs> he doesn't win um, major trophies, really significant major trophies, i.e. we're talking league and Champions League anymore. In fact, he's never won the Champions League in his entire career. Um, Arsenal's performances have been on a long and slow decline. And he, uh, as we've talked about in this podcast many times, he still manages the same way he did 20 years ago. And that's not age discrimination. That's just pointing out that he, unlike Alex Ferguson, hasn't changed, didn't evolve, didn't change as football changed around him. And the results have been evidenced on the field for Arsenal Football Club. And that's his biggest problem, not um, his perceived age or his, um, he was talking about his, his reluctance to, um, to manage his image in the, in the popular media. That's not the problem for Arsene Wenger. The problem is the way he manages the football team and the results they deliver on the field, and they haven't been good enough for a long time. I think it's bizarre that Wenger has chosen to um, bring this into the public domain because for all the reasons that Duncan has said, that age has never been any kind of um, major player in the way that we judge any manager. Sir Alex Ferguson, who is obviously whether regarded as the best um, coach in the modern era, was older than Wenger when he retired and achieved a hell of a lot more than Wenger has um, in his time at Manchester United than Wenger has at Arsenal. So it's bizarre for him to bring this up. And it, I'm a little bit sad because I feel like Wenger's clutching at straws which, which aren't there. Um, I do believe that uh, he is at the end of his um, rightful tenure at Arsenal and I've believed that for some years and um, I think that to, to bring this up is some kind of pathetic nuance um, in order to try and get, I don't know, sympathy or empathy from people who may well have not thought about this as a reason why he's been attacked, uh, generally speaking for the failures in his management style. And it's poor. It's very poor. Um, Figure has had better press than probably any manager that I've experienced in my time covering football in the UK um, over the last 20 years. Um, he is hugely respected for the fact that he doesn't dodge questions, that he turns up for every press conference, both after match and pre-match, and that he delivers answers which are honest and generally speaking, credible to um, everyone who's listening out there or reading it in the newspapers. So I feel just a little bit kind of edgy about the notion that, you know, he's, he's putting out there an excuse which I don't think holds up any credibility whatsoever in regards to why people think he should not be manager of Arsenal anymore. Um, I understand that he's digging a trench for himself at the club, that the um, 
the fact that they're in uh, still in the Europa League and beat AC Milan over two legs, he thinks that you know delivering the Europa League title and and Champions League football next season would be allow him or at least give him some kind of credence to carry on as Arsenal manager in that last year of the contract which was signed last summer. But at the same time, it, it seems to me to be something which, you know, not quite drinking the last chance saloon, but certainly drinking the last chance saloon next door. He, he just, he, he cannot go on and he needs to accept the fact that he cannot go on. Um, and throwing these things out like ageism and everything else is apparent that he is, as I said, clutching at straws and, and trying to be um, someone who can still stand up to the rigours of modern management in the top six of the Premier League um, without actually uh, having the record to justify that. I think that's the most worrying thing for um, Arsenal supporters from what Arsene Wenger said in the interview is that it seemed a very clear stance that he will not resign in the summer. And um, as far as he's concerned, he, should, he deserves to continue as Arsenal manager and intends to continue as Arsenal manager. And if he's to leave the club, the club will have to force him out. And that, that's the big problem for them. Of course, one manager that's been linked this week with, our, with replacing Arsene Wenger is the German ex-Borussia Dortmund manager uh, Thomas Tuchel. Ian, you've got some information on that story and why you don't necessarily think it's a serious one. Yeah, it was interesting, Johnny, that the Thomas Tuchel to Arsenal um, move was reported by what is a very respectable and very reliable um, source in Germany, Kicker Magazine. Uh, they've got very close ties with Tuchel. Uh, they, they, they tend to be... Uh, uh, in terms of um, when they report, they report only because they believe it to be the case and there's a very strong case for that um, story to be printed. But with Tuchel, I just, I've got my doubts here. I think Tuchel is a, um, let's, uh, he may be, let's say he was like Mourinho in 2004. He's popular, he's fanciable, he's, he's de rigueur. And, um, He's also out of a job. And Bayern Munich are not biting on Tuchel right now. And so I, my reading of this, and I stress my reading of this, is that someone who's close to Tuchel on kicker has decided to write in his favour, and I'm not saying it's wrong, that Arsenal um, have made an offer to him. Uh, it's from the outside, um, credible. Uh, he has similar methods to Wenger. Uh, I think Wenger would happily move upstairs if Tuchel was the head coach. And we do believe that when Arsenal finally changed their, their management system, it will be a head coach who comes in rather than a manager. Um, but I think it's a red herring. I do believe that because everything I've heard with regards to where Arsenal have um, looked for an alternative of Wenger, Tuchel has not been mentioned. So I think there's a, a little bit of... Um, and again, it happens in the media a lot. Someone who has a close relationship with that guy 
has decided to do him a favour by saying this is a done deal. But what he's really saying is this guy is up there and he's up for a top job and um, other clubs should be coming in for him um, because Arsenal might be snapping him up. And I think that's where we are with Tuchel right now. Okay, moving on to the quickfire round. It's international week, so we're going to look at the early runners and riders, or in terms of how we feel about them, for this summer's World Cup. So what I'm looking for, guys, is can they win or get in the bin? That's the rules. <laughs> don't, don't try and change them. Can they win or get in the bin? And I'm going to start with you, Duncan. Brazil. I definitely can win. Um, and... As always, a huge amount of talent um, in their squad. Um, very good recent record and um, huge focus on the tournament. You know, they probably Brazil have the advantage of um, a, a national team squad that has more commitment to the national team than just about any other competitors. It really is a priority for a lot of their players, which helps. Or, or indeed their sisters, Duncan. <laughs> Who are you referring to? Neymar! <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would say they are strong candidates. And I think uh, with the tournament being in Russia, it's kind of a different um, environment. It's not properly a European environment. It's a straddling two continents. And uh, one thing with Brazil has been their history of succeeding um, out of their own continent, um, probably better than any other national team, you know, being the first South Americans to win in Europe, um, winning the winning the World Cup in Japan, Korea and Asia. So, yes, they can definitely win it. Ian, uh, this, the answer to this has got to tell us a lot about um, your concerns about uh, how this is perceived in the Kremlin, Russia. Um, without trying to um, engage the transfer window lawyers uh, in any kind of um, scandalous libel, action, I would say that um, when Duncan and I uh, covered uh, the World Cup in um, Japan and South Korea in 2002, we were both shocked by the refereeing decisions made in the Italy-South Korea game, um, which allowed South Korea to make the semi-final. Um, and I would not be surprised if a similar um, if not uh, identical situation arose uh, in next summer with Russia. However, I don't believe they actually have the skill of South Korea to um, even make that latter stage of the competition. So let's just say that um, there'll be a, quote, nervousness about Russia. Just say I, I covered South Korea from before that tournament. I was working for a Japanese newspaper at the time and went out to South Korea uh, the year beforehand to watch the development of that team um, led by Hiddink. And you know, one of the most enjoyable uh, assignments of my professional career because the it, it was a great team, had good access to Hiddink and his coaching staff. Um, they played in sensational environments, something I've never experienced before. You know, the entire stadiums uh, full of noise, supporting their team yeah. from the to the finish. 
Um, and, I, and that Italy game, I think they deserve to win entirely. I don't think they were dubious decisions. The semi-final is when they got the dubious decisions against Spain. That was, that was the one. Controversial of castles, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Duncan, Argentina. Um, I think you have to say they can win because um, you know they were very close to winning in Brazil. Uh, and obviously, it is the, the big question about Lionel Messi's status as you know a candidate to be the best footballer in the game is that he's never won the world cup um and has rarely performed to the top level with argentina so there's going to be a huge motivation for him to right that wrong in russia um so yeah they can win but i don't think i'd put my money on them ian spain I don't think Spain are in a good place right now with regards to the transition from <clears throat> the players who obviously have succeeded so sensationally um, in the past for them to where the, the, the players are now uh, coming through. And I think that um, rock in a hard place will prevent them from, from winning the competition. Um, I think it will be something which will trip them up maybe in the knockout or quarterfinal stage. So you're saying get in the bin? Sorry, in the bin, play, yes. Yeah, play my bin, game, Johnny. play my in game. Bin. In the bin. <laughs> Duncan, Belgium. Put them in the bin straight away. Um, I think they've got a lot of talent on their team, um, but uh, talking to people who cover that team closely and know the players well, there is um, a lack of faith in Roberto Martinez as manager, the way he sets the team up, um, the players he's selecting, and an imbalance in terms of the attacking talent, talent being superior to the defensive talent. You've got to add to that that they've never won anything like this. Um, so it's just too, for me, it's too big a jump. And when the fundamentals of tactics and management are wrong, it doesn't matter what, um, really doesn't matter what talent you've got in your team. So put them in the bin. France. I'm always a little bit kind of, um, I don't know, cautious about saying dark horses and when they become actual favourites. I think France have got the talent to surprise people. Um, they also don't have the expectation, uh, which a lot of teams have. Uh, I'm not sure the circumstances in Russia will suit them. And obviously we have the uh, eternal question with France as to when some player goes on strike or everyone you know calls calls it on or whatever. But um, if they can get their things together, I think they could definitely go as far as the quarterfinals. Portugal. So not in the bin. <laughs> Portugal. Um, European champions. Uh, contrary to a lot of. What was written about them in Euros, I thought that was a very impressive campaign they put together, um, well coached, uh, a lot of a lot of attacking talent, um, good organisation and a real commitment to perform. Um, it's obviously going to depend on where Cristiano Ronaldo is at the start of the season, um, at the start of the tournament. You've got to say he's in in sensational form at the moment. He's in that stage of once again proving the critics who write him off 
at the start of every season in Spain saying he's past it and needs to be moved on um, by once he got back to fitness scoring at, at you know just unbelievable rate if he's in that same um, physical condition going into the tournament then they are a good outsider's bet Ian you've been licking your lips in anticipation of this one England just bid them I don't have to say anything else <laughs> they, they well they don't they don't have any chance of, of winning the World Cup. Um, I'm frustrated and depressed constantly because I've covered the England national team um, as a journalist now for 15, 17 years. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, they don't get anywhere near. And I don't even need to go into the, uh, the reasons for that. I think we just know that Carl Southgate's side will not even... Uh, challenge and possibly not even come out of the group stage. Duncan, what's your, what's your take on England? Um, very similar to Ian's. Uh, always overrated. Um, very difficult for the players perform to perform because of the expectation that's placed on them. Uh, the, the way they're built up into being superstars after just a, you know, a handful of appearances um, because there's such a shortage of talent. Um, at top level English clubs um, and Gareth Southgate I have to say I'm very impressed with his comments on um, racism this week I thought that was extremely mature and um, considered to say you know, let's stop talking about Russia's racist problems because we haven't sorted our own out and it's a, a, an unusual perspective and as someone said can you imagine Sam Allardyce's response if he'd been asked the, the same question Putting that aside, I don't have a lot of faith in his preparation of the team. I think um, you just got to look at what has happened with injuries of um, players on national team duty and the complaints within the Premier League. Various Premier League clubs about the way that Southgate is training the team when he has access to them. Um, and I don't think that augurs well for when he's got them on a sustained um, preparation camp for a World Cup and during the tournament. Okay, and on that slightly sour note for England and our English listeners, I am going to bring this transfer window to a close. If you want to continue the debate, you can. I'm on Twitter at Johnny R. McFarlane, and the guys, Duncan is at Duncan Castles, and Ian is at Garbo SJ. You can get the podcast by subscribing at iTunes or Audio Boom, and if you can please review and rate us on there too, as it means the podcast gets the largest possible audience. We'll be back next Tuesday with the latest instalment of the Transfer Window podcast. Until then, thanks for listening.